my parents taught me a lot about serving others and integrity and hard work and compassion. And those are sort of the central values that, that I live by. We are here with Tanisha Robinson. Tanisha, or T, is currently the founder of Wonder, a sparkling beverage infused with vitamins, adaptogens, and 20 milligrams of CBD. Wonder has a social mission to reinvest 4.2% of its profits towards helping entrepreneurs who come from communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the prohibition of cannabis. She worked as the chief distribution officer of BrewDog globally and was the first CEO of BrewDog USA, where she built the USA business from scratch, laying the foundations for strong future growth and launching the American Bar Division and Doghouse Hotel. Tanisha also served in the US Army as an Arabic linguist and then studied Arabic at The Ohio State University. This gave her the opportunity to work in women's and human rights in Damascus, Syria for two years. She is a featured international speaker on entrepreneurship, conscious capitalism, innovation, disruption, and leadership, and currently serves on the board of the Columbus College of Art and Design, CCAD, and the Mount Carmel Health System. She lives in Columbus with her wife and two dogs. Welcome, T. Thanks, Brad. It's, and it um, was uh, its chief disruption officer. Oh, what did I say? <laughs> chief disruption officer. Sorry, yeah. not distribution. Yeah, disruption. Yeah. That's a really big distinction. Yeah, it is. It is. I was yeah. like, the first one sounds real boring, and that's that's not my speed. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes, although I'm sure your method for being disruptive would be good for distribution. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, thanks for uh, joining me today. And we were just catching up a little bit. And uh, it's, it's great to kind of, you know, get into this conversation about wonder and, and, you know, how you're navigating the times and, and, you know, what it's kind of forcing you to do as a, as an entrepreneur and a startup which you know I know you've done on multiple occasions but you were also you know part of a pretty big global organization so I want to hear about kind of all of that but as you know kind of following our format we like to go back to the beginning and really understand kind of who you are and what's led you to this point so talk to me a little bit about kind of your earliest uh, childhood kind of upbringing, you know, the dynamic that you grew up in? I was always kind of a, an odd, you know, smart little kid, an avid reader from the time I learned to read. And and my, my dad uh, played uh, professional basketball in Europe. So I lived in England until I was five. And then uh, we, and then my dad decided to, to move us back to the U.S. and where he became a police officer in Texas. So we moved from England to Texas, which was um, probably the, the greatest culture shock anyone can experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. And um, you know, so we were in Texas for a few years, and that was kind of the first time where I encountered, like that I felt really, really different. And and the first time I realized that that the color of my skin made me really different. Because mm. um, in England, it's not quite the same sort of thing, uh, and in Texas, it was. Uh, it was, it was pretty overt. And mm. so, you know, that was, that's like from the ages of um, five till eight. Mm-hmm. And that I sort of faced that 
Is there any kind of like specific things that stand out memories that really kind of had you feeling or see experiencing that 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 you know you were different? Yeah, I mean, um, well, it was the, I, like that was kind of the first time in my life I'd ever been called the N word, mm-hmm. and I mean, I I will never ever forget that moment. It was one of the most kind of devastating <laughs> things. Was not only did I realize I was different, but that there was this sort of inherent hatred that had you know nothing to do with with me or, or, you know, as I thought, and I, you know, I was kind of a nerdy little kid and just didn't get it because little kids, you know, in my mind, don't, don't really understand that stuff. So then we moved, my dad ended up working for the FBI and we moved to Missouri, which is how we say it there, which (laughs) (laughs) is in Texas, but with the South. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think also I should, should mention that my family is Mormon. Mm. So that is its own pretty intense dynamic um, because Mormons have a pretty strong belief in traditional family roles um, in terms of like a woman's place is in the home and a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and a mother. And so that was kind of a big ongoing message from the time I was really little that like mm. I'm carrying my whole life to get married and have, <laughs> have children. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so being being um, in a huge Mormon family, so I have an older brother and five younger sisters, it was uh, was great. I mean, I love having so many siblings because there's always somebody to hang with, and you learn a lot about the dynamics of group dynamics and leadership and <laughs> yeah, and um, and allies and um, you know, I'm, but, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and and, and so being being black and Mormon in Texas. Yeah. You know, boy, that's uh, got to be really unique. I mean, it is. Yeah, there, I mean there, really, there aren't that many Black Mormons because um, they didn't let Black people in until 1980. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and what led your parents? Do you know kind of like yeah, what my, led them to Mormon? My mom was raised Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad converted for my mom. So, um, uh, so that was kind of their their thing. And yeah, so I think for me, kind of the overarching theme, whether it's in Texas or Missouri, which I was there until I graduated from high school, is that I really didn't feel like I fit in. Like certainly not in my family, not in my church community, not really even in the communities in which we lived. Um, Were you going along with like the emotions of it? Yeah, I had to. I yeah. mean, when I was, I mean, from <laughs> when I was seven, so Mormon kids get baptized when they're eight. They don't get baptized when they're babies. And the kind of the premise is when you get baptized, all your sins get washed away. All of them. It's like clean slate was the you know metaphor. And I said, well, that's great. But if I only can get baptized once, I want to wait until I'm 18 or 28. <laughs> you had some sinning to do still. Yeah, I was like, you know. I'm not done sinning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got in big, big trouble for that, um, you know. So. <laughs> So for me, I was always sort of resistant to the structures and rules of, of you know, being a Mormon kid. There's a lot of rules to being Mormon. And um, it just, you know, I just didn't feel like it fit for me. And I, and so I think for me, it was a big, a big challenge because I didn't fit in my church community, but my parents were very, I mean, like my brother and I were athletes. And if, if I didn't go to early morning Bible study, I couldn't go to go to sports practice that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of controls in place to make sure that we uh, we showed up for church. Were your siblings 
kind of more engaged, less engaged, kind of like, were you alone in that kind of feeling like it wasn't a fit? How was the kind of the rest of the family dynamic? Um, I think over, over time, it's been interesting over the years is to realize and hear from my siblings, um, you know, their, their views, because uh, we're kind of 14 years apart. And so everybody kind of had to find their own, own way. But ultimately, I think a lot of us felt that that wasn't really the right, the right kind of fit for us. You know, because the town I grew up in, Missouri, is very white, very evangelical. And then, you know, being in a, so we were misfits all the way around. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so kind of talk me through like how that then, you know, continues to shape you or kind of what your, you know, path forward was knowing that, you know, this wasn't for you and it was such an important thing to your parents. Well, I think uh, ultimately I, I, I had to kind of arrive that I, I needed to find my own path. So I, my parents sent me to, Brigham Young University to find a husband. So I was 17 when I went off to college. So I didn't have a lot of control over, mm-hmm. over that choice. And, um, and BYU is even more white than the town I grew up in and, and full of Mormons. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't, I mean, that was really not a good fit. And I think I felt different because I looked different. And, and, um, and you know, I didn't necessarily ascribe to the, those beliefs, I think. You know, and so for me growing up, I just, I read all the time. I've always been super, super curious. And I think reading was a big escape and something that over the years continues to inform a lot of my my life decisions and my life path and, and what I feel like I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. But because of, you know, I was so unhappy at BYU, I decided to join the army so I could take control of my own education. And, and let me just ask you, you know, when you say your parents sent you off, you know, I, I get 17 is you know still young and you're you're mm-hmm. under your parents you know I don't know maybe control to some degree I, I have a 17 year old and an 18 year old and you know I think if I told them you're you're going somewhere that they really didn't want to go they would not go um, <laughs> so you know just talk a little bit about like you know when you felt like you didn't have a choice um, you know kind of what what was that like. Well, I think, I mean, I think the choice was that I would have to try to figure out how to live independently with no safety net at the age of 17, Yeah, which is, you know, and I was always a worker and always had jobs and hustles. Um, Mm. But I think, you know, 17 year old version of me wasn't ready to try to go find an apartment (laughs) and be a grown ass person. And they had made that really clear that, you know, you were going or or you were on your own. Yeah. Yeah. And and certainly as that's played out over the years, they are very serious about those threats Yeah, as it's it's played out for some of my sisters. Yeah. And I ask because, you know, this is one of the things that I'm pretty uh, intrigued by and, and find to be really important because I think we often, you know, as parents and, and in prior generations, you know, we think we know what's best for our kids, right? And so we attempt, and, I, and I'm going to give your parents the benefit of the doubt, you can correct me, but, you know, my assumption is they thought this was in your best interest. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe, you know, their intentions were good and they were doing the best they could. You, again, correct me, right? But, well, I, but I, had, I 100% agree that my parents, like, definitely like, did the best they could. You know, I think that... My, my mother's pure interest was in our salvation. 
and not necessarily that we have, you know, fulfillment or successful lives or happiness as adults, but that we follow the, the gospel. And she's pretty hardcore about the religious, or she's super hardcore about the religious stuff. Yeah. 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 And, you know, then like what happens, I think, you know, and, and I don't know, I've never done this before. So, you know, get back to me, I'll get back to you in, you know, yeah. maybe 20, 30 years. But, you know, I think what happens is that we actually don't know. Right. Um, you know, right? We don't know as much as we like to think. All we know is our own experience. And so then we don't let the, the kid have their own experience. Yeah. We have that we, we want them to have the experience we want them to have. So, you know, I, I could kind of I kind of get it, but you know, you you then decide to do something that, you know, is probably not what they had in mind for you. So talk a little bit about, you know, your decision to go to the army. Yeah, it's funny because people, because uh, obviously I'm I'm super willful, and people are like, well, and and you know, and and pretty um, progressive, and so people can't quite envision me getting along well in the army. But it was a it was a more open and liberal alternative than being at Brigham Young. She's <laughs> it's saying a lot, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I thought you know I felt that the army was a great opportunity to get college money and have some experiences and you know and I think there's great honor in serving serving our country um mm-hmm. you know I'm a big fan of american history and you know a lot of people have made great um efforts and sacrifices that in the armed services and so I thought you know this is a great way to kind of set a foundation for my adulthood where I have some I can get some training and some supervision and, and come out with some some independence and some college money and so I signed up to become a linguist and went to basic training and then went to Monterey, California, where I studied Arabic. And um, why, why linguist and why Arabic? What were yeah. you kind of thinking then? So I, um, you know how some people like can hear a song on the radio and then play it on a guitar. Mm-hmm. I have an ear for language. So in high school, I studied Spanish and German and skipped a couple of years just from the stuff I did in the summer and um, just really love language. I love Kind of this that it if, if you if you <laughs> go through the pain and suffering to learn a new language, it opens up the opportunity to speak with people that you may never otherwise be able to communicate with, and I just think that's so profound and and powerful. And so you know, I, I just thought that was a really good fit, and mm-hmm. so I had a chance to study Arabic. And then when I was in language school, September 11th happened. And, you know, because when I signed up for the army, the world was at peace. I thought I'd do, do a few years and, yeah. and off we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the world changed. And, um, and so I got recruited into a, a special program and, and then, you know, ended up having to, having to serve in ways that I never imagined when I signed up. Did the, did the kind of minority part of you... I'm I'm guessing, you know, again, in comparison to Brigham Young and having grown up in Texas, you know, that like going to the army and, and, and being, you know, a black woman, you know, didn't feel like much comparison to those things, but was it something that, you know, did, was still a, a, a thing for you in the army? No, no. I mean, in the army, it's very much about achievement. It's, it's highly, highly objective. Um, and so, it's really, you know, can can you do it? Can you do the job or not do the job? It doesn't really matter what you look like. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that environment was really healthy for me to kind of be tested and measured against some of the best f- folks in the in the world and um, to see that I could hang. So I think for me that was a powerful reset on context and that I was capable of more than I 
thought I was intellectually and emotionally and physically Mm -hmm. and more resilient than I ever thought I was and could adapt. Um, So it was a powerful experience for sure. Talk to me a little bit about 9-11 happens. You know, you kind of go in thinking this is going to be a a good way for some college money and a good opportunity to grow personally. But now, you know, there's something our country's never seen before and, and you're in the heart of it. You know, tell me about what that was like. It was really scary, you know, because I think that a lot of people join the army for, for college money. They don't necessarily, I mean, people now join and they expect that they may have to go after war. But I think the vast majority of people I was in with at the time didn't sign up thinking that we'd go off to the Middle East and, <laughs> and fight a war and that we might die. You know, I think the ab- abstraction of the idea of giving your life for, or giving your life for your country is very different than being faced with the reality of it. And, um, you know, I think it was also just the kind of uncertainty of how the whole world would change in the future, not just our individual lives. Um, you know, and now almost 20 years later, it's, um, you know, we see the, the difference in, in the world and how, and geopolitics and how people treat each other. So you tell me you were deployed to Syria? No, no. I, I, I went to Syria as a civilian Okay. after I got out and had the chance to work in uh, women's rights. Okay. So how fellowship. Okay. And how long were you serving then? So I, I was in the army for four years. Mm-hmm. And so tell me a little bit about what came next after the army. So as I was getting ready to leave, I was looking at colleges. So I wanted to finish up my degree. So I looked at Ohio State and Georgetown and uh, then started looking at apartments (laughs) 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 and thought, I'm moving to Columbus, Ohio, Um, because Ohio State actually has a great Arabic program. So Is that what drew you to to Ohio State was the program? You didn't have any other exposure or experience to Columbus? No, no, I'd never even been here. Um, You know, and some of my friends were like, well, T, you know, you don't know anybody there. And I'm like, ah, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not um, the army. (laughs) I think I'll be okay. (laughs) It's funny because, you know, you're so... Uh, ingrained in this community now, yeah. you know, and you know so many people and yeah. vice versa that it's, you know, you could almost assume you're from here. Yeah, um, I feel like I'm from here at this point. You know, so I moved here. <laughs> so I've been here um, almost, almost. Uh, let's see, it's over 15 years. So yeah. yeah, been here a long time. Yeah. So you graduated from Ohio State and then kind of tell me about how you started to get into your career. Well, I didn't finish from Ohio State, actually. Okay. I, and I struggled there because um, Ohio State wasn't quite as good with veterans as they were now. Mm. And and I had done most of my major coursework and then had to do all my general education stuff, which was these huge classes full of like 17-year-old kids from rural Ohio. <laughs> I'm like, okay. it felt like... Liberty, Missouri, all over again. But then, then I went to Syria, and when I came back from Syria, I had a couple classes to finish at Ohio State, and ended up freelancing, and then and then starting to build my first company. So, okay, so tell me before we get into the kind of the the companies and the entrepreneurial career track, let's talk about Syria. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So at the time, um, I was there in two thousand and five, and Syria was slowly starting to open up to the West. And what a lot of people don't realize is Syria is one of the most diverse countries, religiously diverse countries in the Middle East. So there's a lot of um, Christians, uh, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic 
and a lot of different sects of Islam and some of the greatest Roman ruins and um, some of the greatest ruins from the history of civilization are in Syria. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful country, um, kind of temp- the kind of climate like California. And so, you know, and before September 11th, um, Arabs had the reputation of being the most generous of people. And I actually found that to very much to be the case, just really beautiful country, really amazing people and had the chance to travel throughout the Middle East. And, um, you know, they were really starting to make strides, obviously the Arab Spring and the new kind of Syrian civil war and uprising is, um, is has devastated the country for, you know, for the rest of my lifetime. But mm-hmm. it was an amazing opportunity to go and see and walk some streets where people had lived or been for 10,000 years. Yeah, and what an amazing perspective. I mean, to hear like, um, you know, welcoming and and California like is not exactly what I think people you know have experienced or or think about you know that kind of life. So yeah. pretty unique to to have that experience and that perspective. Yeah, yeah, it was um, you know, and it was a great opportunity for me to reflect on you know that no matter where you are in the world, people kind of want the same things. Mm-hmm. They want to have a sense of purpose and, and a good life. And hopefully their kids have a better life than they do. You know, it's, it's, um, if you, when you get down to it, like we're all really, really very much the same. Yeah. So true. And a great learning, you know, boy, you've had, you know, kind of a lot to learn at a young age. So yeah. I'm guessing as you start to get into your career, I mean, in hindsight, you can see how all of that serves you really well, prepares you for the challenge of being an entrepreneur. but you know, maybe speak a little bit to kind of how you've started to, you know, come into your own or, or, you know, if, if you, if you were at that point. Yeah, I think, I mean, from the time I was really little, I'll tell you a good story about when I was little. When I was really little, I have, um, from the time I was little, I always felt like I could change the world. Like I always wanted to make a difference. And when I was in seventh grade, in my writing class, I had to, our teacher had us write our obituaries. Mm. And um, maybe I was an eighth grade, so I was like 12 year old, 12. And in my, for my obituary, I wrote that I had done so much work to help the poor and that, um, and the throngs showed up to my funeral and people had called me Mother Tanisha. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really I don't, great. I don't normally say that this tell the story in public because it's so embarrassing, but I really, you know, that's really great. <laughs> well, yeah, because you know, you're not thinking about that at seven as like some egotistical. I'm yeah. going to be the next Mother Teresa. I mean, you know, you're you're thinking about it from a place of service, which yeah. says a lot about you know, kind of who you are and inherently. Um, it's pretty. It's funny and and pretty interesting that you know that's kind of you know coming out at that age. And by the way, like an amazing exercise. I have been told in recent years, um, and I've done the exercise to write your obituary as a way to really kind of put some design around how you want your life to go. It's really right. a very very good exercise to do. I've never heard of anybody doing it at seven. <laughs> No, I was in seventh grade. I was like, oh, seventh 12, grade. Yeah, 12 or 13. Even yeah. then, even then, you know, yeah. I mean, in middle school, that's a pretty intense thing to start to think about. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. So I think I think for me, um, you know, as I think about the thread, like why I chose to go to Syria or why I chose to serve in the army or why, why I chose to go to Syria and work in uh, women's rights, I think 
like that, that's always a thing is like, you know, who, how can I help and who do I want to help is always something that I consider. And then, you know, I never, I've not ever planned my life or my career. Like it's been completely off, off course mm-hmm. <laughs> for a long time. And, um, and so, you know, even in my early, um, you know, in my early career and in my early days, it was just about making forward progress. And am I learning something new and having new experiences? And I think, you know, just by being positive and trying to learn something out of any experience has, I think, kind of led me down the, the very strange path and the very nonlinear path that I've um, had in my life so far. And and that's been something that you've kind of done um, intentionally. That you've you've really embraced, you know, some of the uncertainty of of, of the path, and just allowed kind of the experiences to show up and and take you forward. Is that is that been, you know, you describe it? It sounds like it's a very intentional thing to do, but really hard. I, I know for me and most people to kind of operate in that kind of uncertainty. I think that a lot of people couldn't or like are really, really uncomfortable with uncertainty, really, really uncomfortable. And I think that that's something that kind of the life I've had so far, like the house I grew up in and the community and the, and then the army um, really taught me how to kind of manage uncertainty and, you know, and that the kind of the traditional measures of success don't necessarily, um, you know, the traditional steps of a well-lived life don't necessarily help people cope with, with uncertainty in a, in a productive way. I mean, cause I think that a lot of people have their whole life planned out and never goes that way. Um, and you know, mine was derailed so early <laughs> that, uh, I just kind of have felt like, you know, trying to pay very, very close attention to the people that I surround myself with and the, and the people that I'm attracted to and, and then trying to just make forward progress, whether that's intellectually and not thinking about, well, you know, that my career is the center of the universe. It's really a, a mechanism to do other things. Yeah. And, you know, you're kind of touching on, on a worldview, a belief. One of my kind of greatest uh, beliefs is really that things are always happening as they should and for our benefit. And, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to say that because I've had a really great life. I've had plenty of challenge as well. Um, but, you know, you're, I, I'm hearing you kind of uh, maybe getting the benefit of the turmoil that you oh, yeah. now can be with things in a way that isn't quite as jarring to you because you've had this experience. Is that kind of how you would see it? Yeah, I think, I think it's less jarring for sure. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't, struggle and suffer, but I think that I, I, I um, feel confident in my, myself, myself and, and my own resilience to, um, you know, know that in the future, I will be fine, um, you know, and like I've been able to survive on my wits for a really long time with no clear plan and no clear path. And, and I think the key is, you know, being opportunistic or seizing opportunities when they present themselves in the path and being ready when uh, to seize those opportunities. I think it's not just seizing them, but being ready to seize those opportunities as, as they come up. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get into your 
your kind of first entrepreneurial efforts. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of how you started your your business career. Yeah. So the very first, um, I was sort of in my quarter life crisis when I got back from Syria and just trying to decide what I wanted to do. And so I um, ended up, I was serving and bartending and I, I was washing dishes at Tip Top on Gay Street. And um, I, well, the best part about washing dishes though is that I was listening to books on my iPod. And so I was burning through like a book a day. It was like the most intellectually prolific time of my entire life. It was amazing. And I was doing some um, freelance writing for a couple of dudes that had um, a startup. And and what- Tell me before you uh, go too far, I want to interrupt you. Um, what was on the iPod? Tell me, the, tell me what was really hitting you at that time. Books that were really kind of you know, opening you up a bit. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved Margaret Atwood. So I love a good dystopic mm-hmm. <laughs> version of the future. Good amount of uh, science fiction. Mm-hmm. And then um, those were the days when like behavioral economics was just kind of getting going. And mm-hmm. um, I've always loved a lot of that as a category. Yeah, so, cool. All yeah. right, keep going. Uh, so I um, was doing some freelancing. And so they were, they were effectively doing affiliate marketing. And I thought, huh. It seems like it's just math. Um, and I thought, you know, these guys are making a lot of money and they're, they're not that smart. Like this isn't Arabic or, mm-hmm. or I think I could figure out what they're doing. <laughs> and so did some work with them and just really tried to understand affiliate marketing at the time. And um, so ended up uh, building a little blog on WordPress. And I remember making um, 50 cents a day. And I remember telling one of these dudes like, hey, I'm making 50 cents a day. I think I, think I might be able to figure this out. And he was so dismissive. And um, it's fun to kind of see him around the streets. Uh, <laughs> I have the time now. Um, does he does he give it up to you? Does he acknowledge? He, he does. He does now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So I I kind of figured out you know how to how to run Google ads and Facebook ads and and got to five dollars a day and then fifty dollars a day and, and then was able to build a nice little affiliate portfolio. One of my favorites. Uh, sites on that was a blog called Culinary Miracle. It was all about crockpot cooking <laughs> because crockpot uh, because crockpot cooking is a culinary miracle. You just like put all the stuff in and then wait wait six hours. <laughs> yeah, my wife would agree. She uh, taught in Hilliard for many years, and the crockpot was quite popular there. And um, she's a big fan and, and believer. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah. So after that, I, you know, affiliate marketing is, it doesn't really involve people and it's really just doing math to try to make money. And so I was interested in something that was more consumer facing and I could connect with the consumers. And so I um, had heard about a company called Groupon, which was in two cities at the time. And they were doing daily deals. And I looked at that business and I thought, I don't get it. Like the teeth whitening and the gyms and the tanning, mm-hmm. like you can only have one dentist and and go to one yoga studio and and but I really felt like re- people have multiple loyalties to restaurants but you know early on you know on the scene I mean maybe there was like Tom shoes or you know there weren't a lot of examples of of that kind of um, merging of, of the two worlds yeah I think um, you know, my, when I growing up, my family didn't have very much money, and so I've always been very sensitive to um, sort of the lack of upward mobility for people that are already in poverty. 
and thought, you know, like it's, it's funny. Cause even though we didn't have a lot, my mom would always make us go do service projects. And, um, and so, you know, one of the greatest values that my parents instilled in all of us was that we, even though we didn't have anything, there are always people with less, less than we have and that we can do something to help. And, um, so that's just been something that's always been important to me. And, and it wasn't, um, you know, and I, I thought about, um, I'm trying to think of what book it was that I read about this idea of the triple bottom line, but basically that, you know, it can be a win for the business. It can be a win for our partners. It can be a win for our customers and it can also be a win for the community. And, um, and I felt like, you know, why not build it into the model? We had solid mechanics in the business, meaning our margins were good enough to support that. And, um, you know, I think in, for some businesses nowadays, um, doing good or, or having a social mission is, is a good marketing strategy. But I think, um, you know, for me, it's always come from a place of, of trying to make a positive impact and not, you know, I think people kind of talk about social enterprises. Um, and I, can be can can do social good was the idea of kind of just you know working for self and being an entrepreneur regardless of maybe some of the successes and failures um, and I don't know what the end outcome of FUDA was so maybe you can tell me but you know how do you kind of be with this idea of you're going to be an entrepreneur I, I think um, well, Fuda, I ended up selling after 14 months to a local media company. And, and in that 14 months, we gave $15,000 to the food bank as a little two-person company. Hmm. I think um, I'm, I'm, I've never really thought about getting a job. Um, a, a big part of that is like I'm very willful. And over the years, as I've reflected on the attributes I need in my work, there aren't very many jobs that I could could go get that would yeah. fulfill that, and that I I want I need to visibly move the needle. I need to have a sense of control. I need to you know flex my creativity, and and then it has to align completely with my sense of values and purpose. And so you know, and, and I'm I'm really willful, and I swear a lot, and so I'm not necessarily like the ideal employee for most. For most. Yeah. For most leaders, it would take a you know a special kind of a leader to sort of work with me because I'm not I'm not manageable. Yeah, yeah, and I can relate. I mean, you know, I wasn't real content working in other organizations either, and sometimes pretty unhappy, miserable, even you know. So I think there is something about kind of well, let's go create it then the way yeah. that you know you want you want to be spending your time and. And with the people you want to be spending your time with and doing the things you want to be doing, um, that's got to be inherent, you know. I think to some degree in in the entrepreneurial spirit. And tell I me, just is, I, I yeah. agree with you. I think that it's. I don't. I mean, I don't feel like it's that unique to like have an idea and make it so, but it it is a lot harder, and you know, it takes a lot more than I think a lot of folks imagine. But for entrepreneurs, it's like. You know, I mean, for me, it's it's just something that I I can't imagine doing anything else, and and it's um, an opportunity to create something that hopefully makes a dent. Yeah. So talk a little bit about then you decide to exit yep. food, and I think you know today there's a lot of dialogue around unicorns, right? A lot of people kind of get into startups because they want venture back companies that are going to be billion dollar valuations, exits. You know, there's 
there's so much focus on kind of the, the, the enormous wins, right? Tell me a little bit about your process in, in exiting 14 months into the company. Yeah, I mean, in that one, the market, the barrier to entry from a technology standpoint was really low. And so while we were early, then it was like, you know, everybody and their brother wanted to be the next group on. And so I could see that market saturated saturation starting to happen. And, you know, when there were like three people calling on some of my restaurant partners, I'm like, okay, they're going to get fatigued. And, and so, you know, so while it was still climbing in terms of the surge, we decided to go ahead and, and sell because, you know, that, that was the beginning of the end. And so I was able to just kind of observe that because I was so close to my partners and they're like, you know, I hear from somebody new popping up on this every week. And um, there's a finite kind of pool of partners that we had um, and wanted to work with. And if, you know, if they're getting fatigued, it's just, it was just a matter of time. Yeah. So actually the vast majority of those companies are pretty much defunct at this point. So, mm-hmm. so that was when, that was in that case, the time to let it go. I think, you know, with my, with my e-commerce company, Print Syndicate, Company still running and doing really, really well, but it was time for me to go because I realized I like the fray and the the chaos and the and the mess of the really early stage. Did you and, go right into Print Syndicate? No, I actually um, joined someone else's company as in a small management team as the head of marketing, mm-hmm. and then the other co-founder and I tried to buy the one partner out because he was creating some problems. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that deal blew up. So then we left and started Print Syndicate. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, Print Syndicate, I think, is in a lot of ways how people kind of first came to know you in Columbus. It was a yeah. very big success. You know, talk a little bit about kind of what you shared that you felt like it was not for you anymore. Tell me, you know, kind of how what led to that. Yeah, you know, it was a really, it's a really strange thing because Print Syndicate is um, like, I love, love that company and, and the team and what it stands for. Um, you know, we're in the business of self-expression and we gave a voice to all of these people that like me don't fit in. Um, you know, so we built a great business on creating beautiful products for introverts and alien believers and cat ladies and Ruth Bader Ginsburg fans. So that was, you know, a huge, huge highlight and such a fun company for me to build because it allowed people to express that they belong somewhere. And mm-hmm. so it's this like really special company even now. And and, and like, you know, that's a beautiful uh, sentiment. But you know, for those that don't know, it also includes the cat lady, yeah. right? Like tell me a little <laughs> bit about some of the fun you guys were having doing that. Oh yeah. I mean, like some of our best sellers, one of them is um, Introverts Unite. We're here, we're uncomfortable and we want to go home. Um, <laughs> or, you know, one cat away from crazy for the cat ladies and, you know, just all this really, really fun content. And, you know, and we sold $40 million worth of stuff in our first four years in business, all direct to consumer. And printed on demand. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Yeah, so it was great fun, and we raised some capital and did all the did all the the uh, kind of sexy startup stuff. And you know, over time, I realized that I like the early stage and the fray. And when the business model is kind of a well worn path, and there's not really room to flex creativity, I think 
And I've seen it in some instances where the founder, the business is like steady, growing at 20%, doing great things. And, and the founder gets a little bored and then tries to disrupt the business that's working really, really well, mm-hmm. instead of maybe moving on to do something else. <laughs> and, and oftentimes that's, that can be what um, creates a lot of instability and, and sometimes kills businesses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've tried to be very introspective on like when it, when is it, if or when it's time for me to go. And, you know, and I think that the idea of trying to chase down more profitability and 20% growth just isn't kind of what I envision for my, my work ambitions on an annual basis. Yeah. And it's a, it's a good thing to learn. It, it's, it can be hard. I know for me, you know, I had to kind of wear all the hats and do all the things. But you know, I, it took me some time to realize and then just you know, kind of not fight it and be okay with it that that wasn't kind of my unique ability. That right. you know, the kind of start, the messy vision start part you know, can be really the best thing for you to do. And that it needs other people to to run and operate and grow. And at a certain point, you know, your role is you know not the same as it used to be. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I know that you know you've kind of bounced in and out of you know kind of being at early stage or you know kind of being at uh, you know larger growth companies um, and probably you know kind of done that dance multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. I love the I love the high growth chaotic phase where there's like kind of all the ingredients and you got to turn it into something <laughs> that works. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the part where I'm, I'm best and where I'm happiest and, you know, and, and where you really kind of get to put a team together and go through some really hard shit and then, and do amazing things. And, you know, and I think that a lot of people want stability in their work experience and they want to know what to expect every day. And I, I sort of want the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And and how did you then kind of view Brewdog? I mean, you, you know, are now not the entrepreneur, but you know, I'm guessing there was enough there in the kind of creative energy and the the new entrepreneurial elements of the business that, you know, what were what attracted you. Is that true? Yeah, it is. I mean, I certainly when I left Prince Syndicate didn't think I would go off and run a craft brewery big craft beer fan and drinker, but wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to get myself into the beer industry. And I think, you know, the, the it was certainly, they, they were looking for an entrepreneurial type um, because they built a $30 million brewery and then and hired a handful of people and then were, and then were kind of not making any forward progress. So they needed someone to come in and sort of wrangle the business and get the right people and um, and fix operations and kind of get things up and running. But I think, I mean, one of the big things for me on why I joined BrewDog was because I felt like we were really, I don't know, I would say maybe spiritually aligned because they believe, as I do, that community impact starts with how you treat your people. So at Print Syndicate, we gave all of our hourly workers paid time off. They had high quality, affordable healthcare, meaning nobody paid more than a certain percent of their wages to their health insurance premiums, and um, and we paid and we paid a living wage. And so, and Brewdog views the views the world that same way. That community impact starts with, you know, including all the bar staff that everybody gets paid time off. 
and um, and that's very rare in the uh, in the bar and restaurant industry, and so and even in the beer industry. So, I think it was that there was a meaningful values alignment and an opportunity to do my thing, but with a little bit uh, kind of with more structure within an established brand and with more support. Uh, so it was cool because I had kind of a cohort of the from the global leadership and the founders where I had people to kind of process stuff with and and get I you know and get feedback from that are like living in it and that have the same goals that I did, which mm-hmm. was a really nice uh, part of that experience because, as you know, being a founder can be really really lonely and there's no one to share what you're go- you know share what you're going through. Yeah, and it, and it's clear you know that the values piece of this is an important thread um, in your life, right? You you know kind of going back to seventh grade and you know writing about uh, Mother Tanisha, you know, <laughs> right? Like you weren't going to go work for somebody, especially having you know done your own thing successfully on multiple occasions, unless you really felt like there was an alignment of kind of you know spiritual and creative and and of you know personal values, hundred you know, percent. You can see that coming through, and and and, and you know before we kind of go to wonder, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, what it's been like for you to kind of be in the in between. You know, a lot of people stay with something, you know, maybe longer than they should, and I think part of it it's because they don't really know, uh, or they're too afraid to be in that in between the unknowing the not knowing what's next how am i going to make a living you know how am i going to you know reinvent myself identity you know there's a lot of attachments and hangups that really keep people from being in that in between you know when you left brewdog there was some time in between that and wonder right yeah there was i mean i left brewdog with the idea that I wanted to, I was looking at um, ready to drink cocktails. I was looking at uh, CBD or cannabis, the cannabis beverage space. So I had a sense of what I wanted to do, but not absolute certainty on what it was going to look like. I, I hadn't been running a side, so I didn't, hadn't built the brand out. I think, I think, I think one of the big challenges that I see in people in the in between is that a lot of folks, their entire identity is wrapped up in their job title. And I think that that's what makes it even more scary and even harder is that, you know, when your identity and your ego is tied to what you do for your job, it can be derailing to think about doing something else and what that means for your own sense of self and, and your your sense of identity and your, and your ego. And I think, you know, for me, I am, I mean, I, as as a, as a black lesbian with an Afro, (laughs) People make all kinds of assumptions about what they think about me, so I'm not maybe as worried about that as um, you know a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of folks. But I think that that uncertainty of identity is what is is kind of at the core of of people's fear in in changing careers, even and yeah. and the and the idea of belonging. So even if you're on a team that you don't love, at least you you know it's the devil you know versus kind of that middle school lunchroom experience when you show up to your new job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it says, you know, something about, you know, you and and even kind of that early childhood experience, you know, even more so than the fact that, you know, you've got the, you know, kind of black lesbian afro thing because, you know, that by itself could be an identity, sure. right? Yeah. Right? And and it could be kind of like a big personality identity, you know, where 
you're, you know, standing out in the business first, you know, right? Like, and so there, there could be this kind of draw to like, I gotta, I gotta like keep being that big personality, unique person. And I don't know if that, if that's true for you at all or not. Do you ever feel the pressure to like continue to be the kind of successful, you know, standout person that people have come to know you as? Um, I don't, I don't feel that that as pressure. I think that I'm going to, I think that people expect me to, to, to speak my mind, you know, but as I move through the world, I think like in the Columbus business community and certain business communities, certainly I think people have a very clear sense of what I stand for, which is what's really important to me, you know, and, and even a lot of the stuff that I talk about isn't like about my own, my own shit. It's really about like the all companies can be a lever for impact and that we need to pay our people right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just laughing because I remember I remember like one of my first uh, experiences with you and and you probably have a better memory than I do, but I remember we were at like some kind of community initiative. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it was at 250 high, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can maybe, you know, fill in the blanks, but I remember you having a... Uh, kind of a standout speak your mind kind of moment, and um, and I loved it. It didn't bother me, um, but I think you know there was some thought that maybe it would. Um, and uh, I don't know. You can maybe speak to it better than I. Can. Well, I think you know. I mean, I um, I do certainly speak a lot about the the that and and acknowledge that there's white privilege everywhere, yeah. <laughs> and and that the game is rigged against women and black people, and. Um, and, you know, and I have the um, amazing opportunity sometimes to be in rooms full of wealthy, powerful, mostly straight white dudes. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and which is, which is awesome because some of those, some of those dudes are mentors and, and investors and partners of mine. But I also think that it's worth reminding, you know, folks that are in power that there's an obligation that we all have to our community and to help lift everyone. And, um, you know, and I don't mind um, who the audience is when I want to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a great thing, you know, um, because, you know, I think as a privileged white man, you know, that is engaged, you know, kind of uh, civically and and with, you know, leadership in Columbus, I think it's often maybe uh, perceived that uh, we think it's okay, that I think it's okay. You know, I'll speak for myself that, that I think that you know the way it's going is is working, and so you know it, there's like that kind of you know perception too that's often inaccurate because I don't think it's going well at all. And so right. you know to have people like you making noise in those rooms, uh, I I cherish because I'm often sitting there frustrated myself, and right. you know um, it's and it's a lot I think more powerful when. You know, you stand up, you know, um, and and say something that you know people might be thinking um, or saying even, um, but it's not making the same impact. Yeah, I totally agree, and I and I, I guess I just don't have a problem making people uncomfortable because I don't have a boss, and so <laughs> right, and I and so I think doing my you know being an entrepreneur gives me the freedom to you know, really be open about my values and, and who I am and how I, how I see the world. And, and, you know, but it comes from a place of, 
um, hope and optimism that others want the world to be better and, and that, that maybe they don't know how. And, you know, and so that's why I'm so overt. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta, your community impact starts with how you treat your people. (laughs) I, you know, I get frustrated with, you know, leaders who pay their folks, you know, minimum wage or slightly above and then get awards for philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Like take that money and pay your people right. And that that's how we change our community. So it's just, you know, stuff like that, that makes a dent for me. Yeah, well, I think it's really important. You know, this is where I think the experience actually starts to really pay off. You know, you've got then the ability to kind of take everything that you've learned in work and life and do something with it. And and that's why I was personally attracted to what you're doing with Wonder. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, I, I'm I've been a big CBD fan and um, I don't drink alcohol. And so I thought, you know, like you did, there's a lot of opportunity in this space. There's only so much coffee you can drink, right? You know, there's there's a lot of kind of needs for beverage of of different kinds. That was appealing to me. But what I was, uh, you know, the idea is one thing, but the the person that actually understands and has the experience to execute is another. So it seems like this is a a really perfect kind of culmination of all the things that you've been doing, you know, talk a little bit about kind of what you're up to and, and you know, how you, how you're, uh, I want to talk about how you're doing with it uh, in today's times, especially, but like, let's start, you know, at the beginning for Wander. Yeah. So I think I mean, the reason I, as I said earlier, I left BrewDog was because I was kind of chasing down some beverage ideas and I, and I arrived at the conclusion that cannabis beverages are going to be bigger than craft beer. Um, and that's both on the CBD and the THC side. I think that um, beverage is social. It's a great delivery mechanism, and it's a way that you know people um, already use beverage for different functions. You know, you think about coffee in the morning um, or chamomile tea at night. And so, I felt like you know, with Wonder, we had an opportunity to deliver you know good, great flavor, great function. You know, in a format that people you know, appreciate and, and can enjoy. And, and then on the THC side, I ultimately, I think there's a real opportunity for a social beverage. It's not, you know, I mean, I, I think the, the, the future of the industry is in, with the cannabis curious and not with, you know, people that have been consuming marijuana for 20 years and have really high tolerance. So, you know, as I, as I think about wonder, it's, it's a great opportunity to be really, really early. Um, in in an industry and in a space where there's no front runner, there's really only a handful of players, and and kind of carve out our own version of, you know, I get to carve out my own version of what I think cannabis beverages should look like, which is really cool, and and I feel like we we've, we've created the best tasting and and the most beautiful looking CBD beverage out there, and you know the other challenge though is in looking at the cannabis space as it is today. And, and, you know, hemp is legalized everywhere and marijuana is legalized in, in more and more states. And they're talking about federal legalization. It's already wealthy straight white dudes that are making billions and stand to make, you know, billions and billions off of the future of the cannabis industry. And, you know, as I consider tech startups and craft beer and coffee and, you know, pick an industry Black and brown people have been left behind every single gold rush, every single one. 
And with cannabis, the original entrepreneurs are all in prison. And uh, the vast majority of the, these communities have been absolutely destroyed by the war on drugs. And so in my view, if there is one industry ever in the history of, of startups that we have to wage war for equity, it has to be cannabis. And mm-hmm. so that I feel like, it, and as you mentioned, it's this culmination of all of my experiences and, and kind of a perfect storm from the timing and, you know, and for me feeling ready to try to take on building um, an amazing brand. But, you know, to me, wonder is lever to focus on, you know, really instigating a discussion about equity in the cannabis space. Mm. Really interesting. I mean, it's another kind of component to this, you know, that I think adds a lot of interest and in, in value and, and real motivation. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that. And, and I think it's really right on that, you know, you really have another reason behind doing what you're doing. And it's a pretty damn, you know, passionate and important reason to be doing it. How much does that fuel you? I mean, how much of this is about, you know, kind of changing that, that script? I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, at the center of the universe, even though some states are vacating convictions and setting aside licenses and expunging records, there's a chasm uh, for black and brown people and women in terms of access to capital to start businesses. And that's just, that's like any kind of business, never mind a business in the cannabis space. And so, um, you know, I mean, I think in order for Wonder to have a real impact in the you know, with with what we call the 420 rule, which is why we're donating 4.20% of our profits is that we have to build, an, you know, a, a great brand that's really strong um, with great margins. So like, you know, it's the foundation is building a really strong beverage brand with really solid margins and, you know, that we're operationally strong so that we can really focus on giving back. I mean, it's it's an and both. Like we have to build a great company in order to have a great impact. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, you know, good to highlight. I think there's a lot of, and I don't know how much of this has come with your experience, but you know, you can't lose sight of the fundamentals. Right. You you've got to be able to live to see the next day. Right. If you're really gonna want to make the impact that you want to make, a lot of people today actually maybe are a little too focused on the impact and the brand and the marketing and the social presence, right? You yeah. got to have like a good firm handle on your your margins. I, yeah. I, I'm just um, smiling thinking about when we were, you know, sharing a plane ride and you know you were talking about how Michelle was tired of hearing you talk about your cogs. Like, <laughs> like you're you're really in it. Like you know yeah. you 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 know you know that where every penny's going and yeah. you got to do that really critical, you know, the fundamentals of the business. Oh yeah. I think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to are like, you know, they, like, cause it's great to have a lofty mission. It is, um, you know, and a lot of folks are already dreaming of their exit. Yeah. And that's kind of that, the challenge of these unicorns is that right. there's no good fundamentals. I think the days are over of businesses burning millions of dollars a year um, in order to quote unquote grow, I think, um, you know, the reality is it's an absolute slog in the mud mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and I envision that with wonder, we're going to 
grind for a long time. I mean, I think that there won't be any exits in the cannabis beverage space for at least five years. And I think people that are, you know, but there are people talking about that, like, yeah, I'm going to build my company and then sell it to Coca-Cola in two years. And, and it's like, if you study the journeys of Rockstar Energy or Vitamin Water or these companies that have sold for billions of dollars, it's a, it's a long slog as in a decade. Um, yeah. You know, and I think people just don't think about having the right foundation um, you know, because I, I deeply believe that money magnifies impact, and I believe that great businesses can have great impact, but it takes a long time, and it's really, really hard to build even a good business. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy, no question, and especially in today's times, you know, with what we're experiencing now. So yeah. maybe we talked about this a little bit before we got started, but maybe you could just kind of share, you know, how this has been for you. I mean, having all the experience you've had, nobody has experienced anything like this. You know, in some ways, maybe it's a blessing that you're, you know, so early on. Um, but you know, how is it forcing you to? Um, kind of reevaluate how you're going forward. Yeah, I, I think I think I'm actually really grateful that we were only six weeks into our launch and not six months or a year, because we were just kind of just barely starting to pick up momentum instead of being in the middle of really high momentum. So thankfully, we have a tiny team and low overhead, and um, and our and our capital raise has gone well. So we've We've got, you know, a, a strong cash position and, um, you know, and thankfully our, our best days are ahead of us, but probably farther into the future than I would like, um, which is, you know, it's really disappointing because, you know, we were starting to really kind of hit our stride and, and now that's, um, you know, really slowed. And, and so now it's really around kind of for me as a high growth lover and junkie, like having to really think about um, the, the new pace of the business and, and managing my own expectations and then trying to be very thoughtful about how we grow in the future. I think, you know, because we're so tiny, we, we have a real opportunity to grow, but I think it's going to be different than anything I've, I've seen over the next 18, you know, and it's going to take us like 18 to 24 months mm-hmm. to, um, to I think see some semblance of a of a normal world again, and it'll and yeah. I think the world will be eternally changed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it, it is a really interesting thing. You know, what kind of is coming to mind for me right now is this idea that, like, you know, the saying, you know, we make plans and God laughs. You know, like, you know, you've had all this experience. You know, you've you've kind of everything's led you to this company, and you know, you you really have done a great job. And getting it to the point where it's really ready to take off in a, in a big way, and you know, then this happens, and so it's like, you know, wow, like I've already learned a lot. Like, how much more do I have to learn here? You know, but I kind of come back to it's it's my belief that you know this is is got to be for the for our benefit. You know, it's hard to say that when when people are dying. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm aware of that. You know, very aware, but. Um, I, I think you know that there's some lessons for us to be learned along the way. You know that's our choice. We we have the choice to um, see if there's some learning there. And you know I think that you know maybe the kind of way that this is forcing you to adapt um, is really ultimately going to be good for you and for the business. Oh yeah, I think 
you know, I'm learning a lot about, about patience and, and, and really it's, it's forcing me to be very, very thoughtful about, about strategy and how we build. And so I think that even though I built lots and lots of things, I'm going to, I, the news, the new version of the world means I'm going to have to build this one differently. And, you know, and, and I see it in a way of, um, that we're just planting a lot of seeds that we will get to hopefully harvest in a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also think that there's a lot of need, maybe now more than ever, for products like this. You know, that we have to be cognizant that, you know, you know, and, and I'm not, you know, opposed to somebody having a drink. And, you know, I will too on occasion. But, you know, there are other ways to navigate kind of your your mental states and your health and and your you know well-being and you know i think this is a product that can be really really valuable for people at times like this oh 100% i think you know and and we're we're seeing really strong online sales and you know which is which is really exciting because it's it's a great um, high margin channel of revenue for us and mm. You know, but the reality is we see a lot of folks that are, you know, feeling the benefits and, and relief from consuming you know, CBD and, and vitamins and adaptogens. And so, you know, I think that, you know, some of my neighbors are some of my best, best customers because it is really making a difference. And, and I think that's, that's one of the things I love about the cannabis beverage space is that we really have an opportunity to help people feel better. Right. So tell me, I'm just curious, you know, kind of circling all the way back, you know, with, with the childhood that you had and your, your parents and, and kind of there, and you've mentioned your mom's, you know, really deeply held beliefs around her faith. How do they view you today? I mean, where, where, where does that all stand? You've, you know, gone on, you've made such a nice life for yourself and had so much success um, you know, what is it like today? Well, you know, thankfully, over the years, I've learned that the parents are human beings and that they can also evolve. And so, you know, my parents are, I have a, have a good relationship with them now. Michelle is probably my mom's favorite daughter. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, they're really supportive. I think, you know, at the core of my upbringing, my parents taught me a lot about serving others and integrity and hard work and compassion. And those are sort of the central values that, that I live by. And I think that although I've gone about it in a way that uh, certainly they didn't agree with at the beginning in terms of the, uh, the whole gay thing and, and not being particularly religious, I think that um, as they think about what kind of human being I am, um, they, they uh, seem to be really proud. Mm. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. They should be. <laughs> they should be. You've done well and um, glad to have you here with me and uh, as a friend. And I'm just a big fan and believer in what you're doing. So uh, any other kind of final thoughts or plugs for Wonder, how people can find you or the product? Anything you want to share with the audience? Yeah, I think um, yep, uh, folks can find us on wonder.com, W-N-D-E-R. Um, and, you know, and I think the other thing um, I would just leave folks with is that, you know, this, is, it's, this has been a really, really strange time. And 
an opportunity for everyone to have their resiliency tested, but it's been really exciting to see uh, folks step up in great shows of kindness um, in really, you know, sometimes really, really small ways. And I think if we can remember to just keep being kind to each other, we'll, we'll get through this. And we're not, uh, and I, I, like I said, with wonder, our best days are ahead. And I think, um, you know, hopefully for, for uh, the rest of us, um, our best, everyone's best days are ahead. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm recalling this uh, kind of theme that's come up a few different ways uh, over the last few weeks around um, resiliency, you know, a word that you used and that, you know, being resilient, uh, truly resilient can, can sometimes mean just being, you know, right there with what is and, and not the kind of power through, you know, that we kind of sometimes just need to uh, access like even deeper strength by just standing right here. Yeah. And, you know, that, that I think, you know, has come up in talking to you, the uncertainty piece, you know, the not knowing, certainly that feels like what we're really in for here is yeah. a lot of uncertainty for some time. And uh, to me, that's like a phenomenal definition of resilience. And Yeah. And I, just, I think the, the not knowing is so, so scary. And I think for me, it's been helpful to really articulate and get a hold of what I'm feeling. Like I'm sort of grieving what I thought the future was going to be. And, and I'm disappointed about <laughs> what the reality is and what that means. And, and I think, um, you know, just sitting with that and knowing that it's okay to feel really shitty right now. And then, you know, that we've got to just try to make forward progress. Yeah. Yep. Both. You're right. Both can be true. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to let the shitty feelings be there too yeah. you know, before you can move on to next. So exactly. Thanks, Tanisha. I appreciate yeah. you. Mother Tanisha. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you that. I shouldn't have told you that story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. Thanks for being with me. I appreciate it. it Good was to fun. see you, Brett. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.